This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Uh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. Yep. I'm Latif Nasser. This is Radio Lab. Today, a story about how we humans rearrange the elemental stuff all around us and how one man's pursuit of a basic truth about the Earth revealed in an extraterrestrial explosion, a 2,000-year-old Peruvian skeleton, even a strand of his lab assistant's hair changed the very air we breathe. Comes to us from reporter Avir Mitra. So I guess we'll start it. Okay. Okay. Good afternoon, Dr. Patterson. It's a pleasure to talk to you. With this guy, Claire Patterson. He goes by the name Pat. And I think we'd like to start this interview with you just telling us a little bit about your background. This is from an oral history from 1995. All right. Well, I was uh, born in a small town in the middle of Iowa that was located in the midst of uh, farmland, rolling prairie-type farmland in central Iowa. And this little town... uh, at that school, it was a small school. All the students knew each other for 12 years. So you were all in one school the whole all time? One, at one school the whole time, people didn't move in and out. It was sort of a tribal interaction. And so Pat's tribe... We, uh, we learned how to, to hunt. Did all the things you do growing up in the country. Learned how to swim and fish. And we saw crops being planted. We knew about farm animals. But he was... He was... Uh, this is science journalist Lydia Denworth. He was, in some ways, a farm boy, but... I knew I, I was different than most uh, <laughs> most people. He was the kind of kid who asked his mother all kinds of questions about the world, like... Why is a drop of water round? <laughs> things like that. He set up a chemistry lab in his basement when he was 12. <laughs> oh, wow. In high school, he, you know, was always like... Science teacher would say something about electricity being a fluid. Correcting his teachers. I had to explain to him about electrons. He was just always, always always fascinated by how the world worked. And he had the ability to see beyond what others saw. You know, he he made leaps. So like, for example, this is a kid from a small town, goes to a small high school, small college, and graduates in his first job out of college. He's working on the atomic bomb for the Manhattan Project. Oh, wow. Now, to back up a little bit, at the beginning of World War II, around 1940, there were these European scientists. Like Einstein and others. Who were immigrating to the U.S. and telling anyone who would listen the Germans were making a bomb, an atomic bomb. And they were pushing the Americans to make sure that they didn't get behind the Germans. And so when Pat graduated, some of his professors pushed him to join the army and help the American effort to create a nuclear bomb. So Pat enlisted, got shipped down to Oak Ridge, Tennessee. With his wife, Lori. Lori Patterson. She was also a scientist, brilliant chemist, in fact, and also worked on the Manhattan Project. 
So anyway, Oak Ridge was one of those places that they made a city overnight. 75,000 people in the end were working and living there. And uh, we had a little dog and uh, we went back and forth on a bus to work every day. To these top secret state-of-the-art laboratories. Buried in the mountains. And I don't think he knew what he would be doing when he got there. But he ends up dead smack in the middle of the whole thing. Like dead dead smack in the middle of, of the bomb? Yeah, his job at Oak Ridge was to make the actual stuff in the bomb that goes boom, which was uranium. Hmm. And uranium is an interesting character, an element, really. It's the heaviest element that occurs, naturally at least. So like, you know, every element is made up of three things, protons, neutrons, and electrons. Mm -hmm. Protons and neutrons are in the middle. They're kind of what define the element. So every element has a different amount of these things. And uranium has the most of them. Like just to give you an example, hydrogen has a weight of one, helium four, carbon has like 12, but uranium's out here, it weighs 238. It's just huge. All right, so that makes it, and, and this is key, unstable because the thing you need to do with the nuclear bomb is to break an atom apart. And uranium, like I think of uranium like a guy who's walking around with like a ton of grocery bags. You know, he's just holding way too many bags, (laughs) you know, walking from the grocery store back to his car. And you know, this dude's just not going to be able to make it. Along the way, he's going to drop a bag. And that's basically uranium. It's just too big. It's it's got, it's holding on to too many things. So now if that's just a couple uranium atoms mixed in with other atoms here or there, it's no big deal. But if you can put a thousand uranium dudes in a parking lot overfilled with grocery bags and if you just like threw an apple at one of those guys or threw a grocery bag at one of those guys right right, that dude's gonna drop the bag and then that bag is gonna fall and kind of tumble onto the guy next to him he drops two bags and then four dudes around him tumble and fall and just drop some more bags right it's gonna set off a chain reaction basically and that's where right gets nuclear. So Pat's job at Oak Ridge was to use this newfangled machine called the mass spectrometer. And what that does, it isolates different elements in regular rocks. So he's finding uranium in granite rocks. He's pulverizing these rocks, isolating uranium, purifying uranium. And he basically just spent two years doing this. And then August 6, 1945. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. The United States drops the U-bomb, the uranium bomb. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction, the like of which has never been seen on this earth. When the bomb exploded, temperatures on the ground reached over 7,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Tens of thousands of people were killed instantly. And that's just from the energy of the explosion. But then what happens is something arguably more horrifying. Because when a uranium bomb explodes, now there's all this uranium around just spewing out all these protons and neutrons. And even if you didn't get killed by the bomb, those protons and neutrons, they're going to go right into your body. Hospitals filled with patients who had not seemed sick before. At first, they were quarantined, considered victims of a mysterious infectious disease. And if there's enough of it around, it's literally going to tear your body apart from the inside. They were vomiting, bleeding from the gums, and purple spots appeared on their skin. 
Some could not be touched because their skin slipped off in huge, glove-like pieces. These people were special victims of the atomic bomb. And that's exactly what happened in Hiroshima. And then we dropped a second bomb on Nagasaki. During the war, developed these... Pat said, you know, as this 22-year-old kid straight out of college, like, he never really fully understood the scope of what he was doing. And that these, these mentors of his... These mentors, these professor mentors, they knew that they were working as engineers uh, on a hideous weapon of warfare. And they conveyed to young people like me that uh, this is the thing to do. This hideous crime we were committing was, it was a necessary thing. After Japan surrenders, you know, Pat and his wife were given these commemorative pins that said Manhattan Project, A-bomb. And according to his wife, they just threw them in the trash. So, so, so what is that? Like, is that, is that like... Is that regret or anger or shame or like, yeah. I think it was probably all of those things. I think he felt like this thing that had sort of inspired him and moved him and defined his life, which was basically just curiosity about the world, understanding things, had kind of been taken advantage of and sort of used to create this real horror. And so he just wanted to get away from all of that. I think he just wants to get back to doing science that's free of all of that. True science. It's just for an understanding for its own end. Yes. But that's not quite how it worked out for him. So after the bomb project, Pat and his wife, Lori, moved back to Chicago. And he enrolls to get his chemistry PhD at the university there, the University of Chicago. Started taking courses. And one day this professor comes up to him. And he said, hey, Pat. Look, I'm trying to answer this question. How old is this rock that we're sitting on? Like, how old is the Earth? We didn't know that? No. Nobody knew the age of the Earth. People had been trying to guess at this for a long time. It started with somebody adding up all the ages of everybody in the Bible. Which got us to about, like, 6,000 years old. It's not right. (laughs) And then, you know, people start finding dinosaur fossils, and it's like, okay, well, I guess this has to be a little longer than that. But still, no one knew exactly how much longer. Mm. Anyway, so that's... So Pat's professor says to him, this is perfect for you. It's pure chemistry. And you'll be famous because you measure the age of the Earth. And what did you say? I said, good, I will do that. And then his professor said to him, It will be duck soup, Patterson. It's going to be duck soup, we, which I guess is a way of saying it's easy. That's my, that's my favorite Marx Brothers movie. Duck soup? Yeah. Mm. Anyway, okay, sorry, keep going. Okay, so Pat's got this job now, right? No making bombs. It's just this pure scientific question. But the crazy thing is, The key to answering this question is the same thing that caused all this horror in the atom bomb. Okay. So. Intrigued. (laughs) So basically, uranium is sitting around in all these rocks on Earth doing its thing, right? Over time, it slowly drops a proton or neutron here or there. And since it's just mixed up in other rocks, it's not a huge deal. But while it's not really hurting anyone, it is doing something else. It's decaying. It's actually changing into a different atom, a different element. So over time, really, really slowly, as it spits out protons and neutrons, the uranium atom turns into like thorium, then turns into radon and turns into bismuth. Ultimately, it turns into lead. And lead is stable. So it's just going to be lead forever, as far as we know. Mm -hmm. And the thing about this decay is that it happens at a very predictable rate. It's very, very slow. 
But scientists figured out that, like, say, if you start out with a rock that only had uranium when it was formed. Now, if you look at the rock and you see, I don't know, a gram of lead, you know how long it took to make that lead. You could tell how long that rock's been around. Got it. That basically means that you have a super accurate clock hidden inside every rock. Clock rocks. Clock rocks. Got it. But the problem with rocks on Earth, when you try to date them, um, there's not good dates. No, I'm just kidding. Um, like, think about rocks. <laughs> People is, look at you funny. They, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just awkward, <laughs> you know. Um, no, but the problem is that, you know, when you figure out the age of a rock, that's great, but it just tells you the age of that specific rock. It just tells you how old that particular rock is. Like, that's all you really yeah. know. How how do you know that's the oldest rock or the, uh, there's another rock that's even older or, that, or this one actually was just made yesterday in a volcano? Like, who, yeah, who exactly. knows? Yeah, exactly. That's the problem. The earth is just a chaotic place, you know? And, and so somehow you need to get your hands on a rock that you know for sure formed at the same time as the earth. And how could you possibly do that? Well, what Pat had to do is go to the very center of an explosion that was about a thousand times bigger than the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. Which happened thanks to nature, actually, not humans. Out in the middle of this desert in northern Arizona. It's like red rocks, flatlands, all you could see for miles. All right. Here's a... Oh. I actually went there, met up with this guy. Hello. You're right. That's right. How's it going? Hey. Michael. Michael Schwab. He's a tour guide. So where do you want to do this? Do you want to go out to, to Picture Rock all the way out there and do this? Yeah, I think that would be cool. Maybe we could just like walk and you could teach me. Yeah, absolutely. Follow me. So yeah, he walks me on this path and we're walking and talking until we get to the edge of this ridgeline. Oh my God. And look down into this huge crater. Just imagine the biggest hole that you could ever possibly grasp and then just amplify that. It's. I don't know how to describe this because it really just looks like someone set off a bomb in the middle and it's just a perfect circle. <laughs> it's almost a perfect cr- circle, yeah. It's, it's difficult to describe in words. And basically, it's this huge crater in the middle of the desert that's almost a mile in diameter. And it is... If you put the Washington Monument down there at the bottom... Deep. We'd actually be eye level with it. No, you got to be kidding me. Most people when they come out here don't even know what to do with themselves. They just sit in awe of it. Actually went out, talked to some people who were out there. Big hole, right? (laughs) It's kind of messing with my head a little bit. scary. Fascinating. A lot of people can determine which way it got here, but I see it as the majesty of God's hand. It is kind of a miracle how this crater got here. But to explain... A couple years before Patterson was going to answer this age of the Earth question, astrophysicists had strong enough telescopes that they were able to look into the heavens and see how other solar systems had formed. And what they were seeing is that solar systems form at the same time. Forms at the same time as as what? As In other words, like with our solar system, you might think, oh, Jupiter formed first and then maybe Earth formed later. Right. But no, they all happen together. Got it. But one planet that should have become a planet, for whatever reason, didn't clump together right. And it formed the asteroid belt. Hmm. And in that belt, there was this big rock, about like 150 feet long, half the size of a football field. And for countless years, it was just hanging out, floating in space. So it's just vacuum sealed in space, not getting changed. And then one day, 
another rock very gently tapped it. (laughs) And that set it very slightly off its course. And year after year after year, its orbit is now bringing it ever so closer and closer to the sun. Mm. And eventually, 50,000 years ago, Mike likes to imagine it was early summer. Yeah, I like to say July 4th this thing hit as the best fireworks show ever. So July 4th, 48,000 BC. Ice Age. This whole desert was grassland. And people hadn't even crossed the Bering Strait to get over here yet. Right. So you had creatures like Manny the Melancholy Mammoth, Sid the Sloth. And that day, had they looked up, they would have seen this huge flaming rock. It would have looked like a great ball of Almost like the bit of the sun came down. Hurtling towards them very fast. About 26,000 miles per hour fast. And then next thing you knew... This flaming rock came falling out of the sky. Slammed into the earth in a huge fiery explosion. It took just 10 seconds and meteor crater was formed. Now, when this meteor struck, there was so much force that the meteor itself was just, like, disintegrated. Most of it disintegrated. But... In here, we have a picture of the crater. Some of it survived the impact. But we also have, front and center, the largest fragmented meteorite we recovered from this site. Wow. And you are welcome to touch it as well. Whoa. Okay, yes. You are not lying. This is... All right. How big is this thing, like, in terms of size? This thing is about three feet in length. So the first thing you actually notice is that it's not totally smooth. Looks like Swiss cheese. It looks like Swiss cheese. Kind of looks like almost like an arrowhead type of shape. Or as I'm looking at it now, it kind of looks like a lopsided dinosaur skull. Yeah, it does look like a dinosaur skull. But arguably my favorite thing is that people worry all the time like, oh, doesn't anybody try to steal this? Right. Because I'm considering it. If you try to pick it up, and somehow you bring it back to your car, you can have it. Because it weighs 1,406 pounds. This three-foot thing weighs just under a ton. you got to be kidding me. Mm-mm. Do you mind if I try to lift it? Absolutely. All right, here, hold. Here, let's put this down here. Hold this and point it at me. All right. Okay, I, do, I have been doing squats and deadlifts, so... Good luck. I just want to give you a heads up that I may be the one. Good luck. All right. So I'm just going to put my arms around this thing. Okay. (laughs) It's a very futile effort, folks. It's just not happening. (laughs) (laughs) Holy crap. I can't even budget. No, you can't. But. Can we we try together? No? All right. All right. Oh, my God. Okay. So so, so now how is this going to help Pat determine the age of the Earth? Well. He knows that this rock, formed at the same time as the Earth, has been perfectly preserved in space. And it sings. Yeah. Whoa. It's metal. This is a solid piece of metal. Yep. 92% iron and 7% nickel. And then that last 1% is 80 other trace elements. Including lead. Ah. Bada bing, bada boom, you just measure that thing with that thing, and then you got the age of the Earth. Kind of. I mean, like, look, these are tricky equations, tricky tools. It's not easy. So before you start measuring the meteorite, you want to just, he, he just kind of wants to go practice on regular rocks, like regular granite rocks, just make sure that, you know, his technique is down. Got it. Because you have to measure it so precisely. It's, it's got to be so accurate. You really don't want to be making mistakes. 
So Pat takes a piece of granite mm-hmm. and the machine spits out these results that are totally confusing. Mm. Like his numbers are way off. There's way too much lead in the rock. Yeah, there was lead there that didn't belong there. Like this rock would have been formed a gabillion years ago. And he's just saying there's way too much lead, there's way too much lead. And he couldn't figure out why. But one day he's like, let me, you know what, let me just run a blank sample. Something that chemists do when they want to just test their system is you just run it. Like instead of putting this piece of rock in here, let me just run a blank. And so when he did that, he still got like a whole lot of lead. So he's like, okay, my blanks are not blanks. So he knew that it was coming from the laboratory. This is a contamination issue. Right. Where did it come from? Okay. You go back and you track it down. I say, well, it must be that. So first he started with the glass speakers he was using. The vials are the first thing you're going to look at. So he tests the vials. And he goes, Lead. These glass vials are made with lead. So let's get some new vials. Right. So gets new glass vials. Special order, never were made with lead. Runs the sample again. It's still off. And so then he's like, you know what? In this sample where I put the granite, I also put some water in. And he realizes actually the water is coming from lead pipes. Uh... And so he's like, oh crap, that's the problem. So he has to triple distill the water, boil it off make sure he catches it in a vial that has no lead in it to make sure that his water doesn't have any contamination from the pipes it came through. So he runs the sample, and it's a little better. But there's still lead there. So now he's, like, obsessed. And Patterson, he's working in this lab. And it was pretty grubby. He looks at the walls, and he's like... There is peeling paint. So he tests the paint. It was in the paint. So they repaint the walls. But... Still. There was way too much lead. Then he looks at his desk where the mass spectrometer is sitting on, and he figures out every joint in the desk is soldered together with lead. Oh, man. So he needs a new desk, new chairs with no lead, and then he uses saran wrap to cover every desk and every chair and every object in the room. And still too much lead. Wow. And so he thinks maybe there's some lead in the dust on the floor, so he starts mopping the floors. He gets the lead numbers to come down a little bit. And then one day, he notices a co-worker's lipstick is messing up his samples. Mm. So he tests the makeup and he's like, okay, there's lead in there too. You can't wear makeup in this lab. And he eventually, he starts to get the lead number lower and lower. But then one day he's working in the lab and a little piece of his hair falls onto the desk. And the lead numbers shoot up. He said, you know, holy your hair. It's on him. <gasps> wow, he's the contamination himself. The lead from your hair will contaminate the whole damn laboratory just from your hair. <laughs> and so he shaves his head. But then one day he decides, okay, well, I'm just going to test my skin. And he ends up seeing that there's a bunch of lead in his skin. Oh, no. It's everywhere. There was lead in absolutely everything. And in the end, he made people, they had a little ante room and you had to, you literally had to strip down to your underwear and put on this Tyvek suit. Which gets washed in acid. And have little booties on and put plastic over their hair. He builds positive pressure air vents so the air is constantly blowing and pushing anything inside the lab, outside the lab. So even if you walk in with a little microgram of lead, the air may push it out. Mm. He basically invents what we now call a clean lab. Mm. 
but he ultimately gets his samples down, his blank samples down to 0.1 micrograms. So that's one-tenth of one millionth of a gram. Oof. And that took years. But is that still too much? No, that's fine. And so after this, he's finally actually ready to go to Canyon Diablo, get this meteorite, and actually measure the damn thing that he was trying to do from the beginning. And so he took these precious samples. He puts the sample into the mass spec. And it was late at night. He was there by himself. Just basically turns a crank and boom, pops out a number. Which was four and a half billion years. And that's, is that, and is that like way b- That number yeah. is the age of the earth. Wow. It's, it's just a number. But what it represents, it's this fundamental truth. And in this moment, he's the only human being who knows the truth. He now has this window to that moment, the formation of not just the earth, but the entire solar system. Sun, the planets the moons, the rings around Saturn, me, you, everything comes from that. I mean, it was so exciting for him. He thought he was having a heart attack. He went to visit his parents in Iowa the next day and he made them take him to the hospital, but he was fine. It was more like a a lot of adrenaline coursing through him. He calms himself down and he's like, here I go, I got the number. He publishes it in a journal and it's just... yawns, like... (laughs) Nobody cares. No one cared about, I mean, who cares? Even today, people don't care how old the earth is. So it definitely didn't get into any textbooks. It wasn't in the press. Seven years of his life has gone by. So it wasn't ducks. It was, it was. It was not. What's hard soup to make? It was like a foie gras or something. I don't know. Okay. That's good because it's also duck related, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But I discovered in all this work, story related to lead. Like, this process of figuring out the age of the Earth sort of unveiled this truth about the world to him, which is that we're totally contaminated with lead. Right. I am contaminated. You are contaminated. Every living thing is just filled with lead. And now that he's seen that, he, like, he can't turn away from that vision. Like, I almost think of it like the Matrix, you know, like when, when you go into the Matrix and you see those little green t- numbers falling or whatever, and you just see the world for what it is, which is just like this, this thing that no one else is seeing, you can't look away. But what happens when no one believes what you're seeing? Back in a minute. This is Bree calling from Austin, Texas. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Science reporting on Radiolab is supported in part by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Radiolab is supported by BetterHelp. Whether it's already 2 a.m. on a fun night out, graduation time, a new year, we can find ourselves wishing we had more time, wondering where it all went. But there's a question. If we were magically given that time back, what would we do with it? 
perhaps you'd spend more time with a friend that you've lost touch with or petting your dog or just noticing the sweetness of doing nothing. The best way to let those special things into your life is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority going forward. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Radiolab today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Radiolab. When you see actor Danielle Brooks on the red carpet at the Oscars, she will be in full glamour and in grief. I've been with Sophia for so long. And I just know, like, after the Oscars, that chapter is really done. And that saddens me. I'm Kai Wright. A star of The Color Purple honors the role that shaped her career. Next time on Notes from America. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Latif Radiolab. Back with Avir, who started with a story about uranium which is by now decayed into lead. Yeah, which I think is a probably a boring topic. It's like talking about the Beatles, you know what I mean? It's just everyone kind of knows about the Beatles and lead. You know, you could talk to anybody. Everyone now knows like, oh, lead is bad for you. You know, yeah. lead and paint chips, like don't eat lead. Like, But, you know, back in the 50s, people really just didn't care about this. They didn't, they weren't thinking about lead. And science of the day said, sure, lead poisoning is a thing. If you work in a mine and you, you know, don't wash your hands and then you eat a burger after touching lead, right. then sure, you'll get lead poisoning. We've known that for thousands of years, but it's, but it's not like we're working in a lead mine. Right. You know? But for our dude, Pat, he's like, no, 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 come on. Like something is going on here. And he's like the only one who sees it. The Matrix is everywhere. That we're living in a dream, like we're, we're living in a lead mine. You have to see it for yourself. Okay. So Pat's finding all this lead in his lab. He's stripping down to his underwear, shaving his head, and he's telling people, and they're just like, dude, who cares? Like, it's just your lab. I, I definitely would have said that. I would have been like, okay, yeah, so it's like an experimental nuisance. Like that, I get that. You've proved that. Right. But Patterson believes, no, this has to be bigger, which leads him to this question, which is, okay, there's a lot of lead in my lab, but is there a lot of lead out in the world? So Lydia Denworth again. He started by looking in the ocean. So first thing he does is he gets a boat. You weren't on the boat yourself. Yes, I was. Oh, you were on the boat. Okay, And I okay. got sicker than a dog. He has a big problem with seasickness, but he's just like, whatever. I hated it. I he goes out, collects a bunch of water from the Pacific Ocean, takes the water back, analyzes it, and sure enough, lead there is a ton of lead in the ocean. So I said, okay. Proof. I, I published a paper. And did it make waves in science or the public? No. <laughs> a lot of scientists were like... They didn't care at all. If you say so, I don't really know. I also don't really care, you know. But he's more convinced than ever. I mean, he starts walking around campus wearing a gas mask. And a lot of people thought he was just plain crazy, right? Everyone's like, dude, like, 
Lead is natural. It's probably always been there. This isn't some new crazy thing. But Pat just doesn't believe it. There's no way it's been like this forever. And then one day he gets into a conversation with a friend who gives him this idea. That the place to look to understand the amount of lead in the air in the past is the permafrost of the snow in like Greenland or Antarctica. Because snow in the polar regions, it comes out of the air. And lead, if it was in the air. And lead's in the snowflakes. It would come down out of the air and settle into the snow and it would never leave because that snow and ice didn't melt. And then the next year, there's another snowfall. It doesn't melt. Then the year after that, there's another snowfall that doesn't melt. Next year, you have another one. Next year, you have another And the snow starts to like layer on top of each other almost like the rings of a tree. It just, it's just preserved. Because it's permafrost. It's permanent frost. It's like it's, it's permanently yeah, there, right? Yeah. Permafrost. So now it's 1964. He goes out to Greenland. And he took his 15-year-old son <laughs> with him. Well, I thought it was pretty cool. This is Pat's son. My name is the same as his, Claire Cameron Patterson the third, actually. He goes by Cam. Always have. Basically, you know, they fly out to Greenland to this military base called Camp Sentry. When you arrive there in a helicopter, you don't see anything except uh, antennas and a few trailers and oil barrels. And snow. Snow that goes three miles deep. So Pat and Cam put on all this gear. Dressed up in plastic suits. Gloves. And went down into this tunnel. That went down into the ice. To go back in time. And they cut out like four by four chunks of ice from the wall. We had a melting trailer up on the surface. So they melt down this ice, ship it all the way back to the lab. And this is where Pat can really start to see the history of lead over time. And what he finds is that starting in like 1700, that there was basically no lead at all. Like, nothing. And then in like 1750, with the start of the Industrial Revolution, you see the lead levels start to go up and up and up and up. Hmm. Until 1930, the lead levels skyrocket straight upward. And Patterson's like, well, hmm. what the hell happened in 1930? Well, the thing that changed was lead gasoline. Suddenly, there was leaded gasoline in the air. So, long story short, in 1921, car makers were trying to figure out how to get rid of something called engine knock. Engine knock. Knock. So, like, which is the pinging and bucking that engines do and it slows down their efficiency. And so, there were chemists trying all sorts of different things. And eventually, they put a teaspoon of lead into some gasoline. And the engine knock stopped immediately, instantly gone. And people loved it. People wanted it. By 1960, 90% of cars were using leaded gasoline. And, and Pat's sort of looking at his results from this permafrost, and he's like, Holy smokes. <laughs> this can't be good. Yeah. It's everywhere. And he wrote this paper that basically said that lead had contaminated everything in, in the earth and that it's coming from leaded gasoline. And this time, when his paper goes out into the world, no one cared. <laughs> nope. Uh, you know, he sounded like a crackpot. Cam says around this time at home, his dad would sort of lose it. Get all excited. And now these are chimpanzee idiots. Talk about the idiots that didn't understand anything. They're wrong, okay? okay. And I knew that, okay? Now. <sighs> because there were a lot of people being like, Okay, sure, there's more lead in the air, but that doesn't mean there's more lead in us. 
Next, he basically gets a hold of 2,000-year-old ancient Peruvian skeletons Mm -hmm. and takes their teeth, grinds up their teeth, and measures the amount of lead in their teeth. Then he compares that to his own children's primary teeth. Oh, funny. It's like baby teeth. Yeah. They're baby teeth. Yeah. And he actually finds his children's teeth have 3,000 times more lead than the Peruvians. Oh, God. And still, people don't care. Whoa. Because they're like, okay, there's more of it in us. Seems fine. Not making you sick. And when they say making you sick, they meant, you know, killing you, making you blind, making you have seizures, um, things like that, right? Putting you in a coma. I mean, you know, it's not uranium. You know what I mean? It's not like people's hair and skin is just falling off and and they're just vomiting blood, you know? It's, right. So it's more subtle than that. May, maybe more subtle. That's the question, you know? Is this harmful? Right. And, and what is the and, harm? And what yeah. is the harm? Yeah, right? yeah. But what I think is interesting is Pat doesn't try to answer that question. Huh. What was your motivation at this point? Were you thinking in an environmental sense? No, I was not. Science, science, science. Just, I didn't care two hoots about verifying what the contamination was. I see. So you were not being driven by environmental concerns. I was not. To be clear, Pat was convinced that lead was harmful. He just wasn't interested in doing the research that showed exactly how or to what extent or how to fix it. But I had friends and colleagues who were concerned about the environment. They were concerned about people being hurt by all this. And Patterson would share his data with them. He'd come to my laboratory. He would show them his techniques, and a lot of these people would go on to use this stuff to show just how harmful lead was. It was crucial in getting lead out of food can solder, getting lead out of glazes and this sort of stuff. And while he knew that this was a good thing, to him it was like this slippery slope that led back into this messy world of human motivations, into policy and politics. And the thing is that Patterson was so difficult to work with that he often didn't get invited to be on the national committees that were deciding things. And one of the few times he did, he shows up in D.C., and they're talking about what should we what should we make recommendations to reduce the level of acceptable lead in the environment to? And he just says it should be zero. That's the acceptable level. And so they they do this without him. He refuses to sign the final report. And he writes at the bottom, Dr. Patterson does not wish to be associated with this report. <laughs> he writes his own addendum. He just writes this line, the mining and smelting of lead within the human environment is actually a monumental crime committed by humanity against itself, period. Regardless, the EPA did slowly start catching up to the science and banning lead from things. Actually, now they're getting lead out of paint. But to Pat, that wasn't the purpose of science, not like real science. For him, science was how it was when he was a kid, you know? Where science isn't about solving some problem. It's not... How can I solve this challenge? But why is that? Why is a drop of water spherical? And now that Pat had been able to prove what the natural level of lead should be, he was really just left with this simple question. Why? Why? I mean, what led us to poison the Earth's biosphere with lead? He started looking at ice cores that went all the way back to 800 BC. And what he found was this wasn't the first time that this had even happened. You know, like Greeks, Romans, every empire has poisoned themselves with lead. 
That proves for 2,000 years we have been unable to understand the evil that we are doing to ourselves. And at this point, Patterson's question starts to shift. It becomes just a question of why are we this way? Okay. How, how, why do we think? How do we think? He actually starts writing a book, and it's... This new concept of uh, human consciousness. All over the place. It's about... I, within the brain. Neural pathways. Neuronal circuitry. It's about... Abstract rationalization, thinking, and response. Problem solving. Formulation of religious myths. Human civilization, the nature of scientific thought. He worked on this idea for years and never really seemed to get anywhere, and it was tough on him. Cam said over time he noticed his dad grew angrier, more jaded, and talked less, spent less time with his kids. And on December 5th, 1995, he has an asthma attack in his office, and he dies. He was 73. Less than a month after his death, January 1st, 1996, the EPA banned the greatest source of all lead on Earth, the one that had driven Pat crazy, leaded gasoline. And obviously, lead is still with us today. Like, that's very clear. But in the years since Patterson's death, the amount of lead on the average freeway has decreased by 97%. And the average lead in people's blood in America has decreased by 94%. And lead experts say that all of that resulted in a five-point increase in preschoolers' IQ. And just as a side note, the age of the Earth still stands at 4.5 billion years old, which is exactly as Patterson had calculated 70 years ago. But what what really struck me when reporting the story is like how little recognition Claire Patterson got over the course of his life. But eventually some of his students banded together to nominate him for the Tyler Prize, which is an environmental award. Um, it's kind of a big deal. And he actually won the award eight months before his death. But by all accounts, including his own, he took no pride in it. I'm sorry to say, I don't want to... In- so, okay. I, I, have, okay. I have zero pride in any award, okay? So I want to use the word pride, but can I use the word pleasure? Gratification? Can no, we not, not gratification. Pleasure? We have to use then, pleasure. I... No, good heavens, my whole... Uh, look, I'm stupid, all right? I'm not some brilliant person or whatever. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little child. I'm not smart. I mean, good scientists are like, they have the minds of children to see through all this facade of all this other stuff that, that they know is stupid nonsense. They don't know, they just don't see it the way other people see it. Okay, so I'm not smart. So anyway, so these, it, it's only circumstantial. It's, it's not, you know, I, that's why I don't feel any honor. I'm not to be, it's not there, not qualified to be honored. I mean, I'm, I'm just simply, it's, it's accidental. Reporter Avir Mitra. (music) 
This episode was produced over millions of years by Matt Kielty, along with Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, and Maria Paz Gutierrez. Special thanks to Cliff Davidson, Paul M. Sutter, Denton Ebel, and Sam Keen. WNYC Studios is supported by Wondery. Hey, grown-ups, The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery perfect for the whole family. Join The Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get Fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. When you see actor Danielle Brooks on the red carpet at the Oscars, she will be in full glamour and in grief. I've been with Sophia for so long, and I just know, like, after the Oscars, that chapter is really done, and that saddens me. I'm Kai Wright. A star of The Color Purple honors the role that shaped her career. Next time on Notes from America. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jada Boomrod. I'm Robert Krolwich. This is Radio Lab. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Off we go. I think there's always been a desire to somehow categorize and classify the world around us. Remember in when you were in I don't know when it would be like in eighth grade when they when the teacher comes in in general science and he pulls down the periodic table of elements. Remember oh yeah, that? sure. I mean that was one of the first times where I was like. Yeah, I don't want to be a scientist. It's not for me. <laughs> but for kids who love this kind of thing, take Oliver Sacks, for example. Yeah, Chad, you should come in. I should come in? Okay. Yeah, so a couple years ago, we had went to talk to Oliver Sacks about something. And for some reason, we ended up in his bathroom. I tend to read a little bit in the toilet. Maybe to look at a book or something? He seems to have facts and figures in his as well. There's a lot of us in there. I'm sorry. Sorry. And that's when uh, we noticed... Well, you the periodic chart in the bathroom. In every, in every bathroom. <laughs> but he had a periodic table of the elements on the wall in the bathroom. And we thought, wow, how funny. Periodic table in the bathroom. But then he said, well, you know, if you go out into the couch, you'll see... Periodic table cushions. Some cushions embroidered with the periodic table. And then he took us to his bedroom. Although I don't usually take people into my bedroom. Oh, we'll come. Where he showed us his periodic table comforter. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I tend to sleep here right under tungsten. <laughs> but the cool part was when he took us to the living room, where he had this... Uh, it looks um, like an altar. It's like a little, a little dictionary stand on top of which was a beautiful mahogany box. A fine wooden box. About the size of a backgammon set. Called Periodic Table of the Elements. It is a very fine wooden box. Uh, and if you care to open it... Right, it's... it's, it's uh, 
It's made of some sort of fine wood. It comes from Russia. Is there a trick to opening this? Um. Ooh. Okay, we've all seen the periodic table, you know, on a chart. But in Oliver's box, there, there were the actual elements. Oh, these are all these. We have here like 90-some-odd little... Uh, Little tubes, little samples, little teeny vials of almost all the elements. Silver, arsenic, bismuth, cobalt, oxygen, copper, hydrogen, phosphorus, iron, manganese, mercury, nitrogen, molybdenum, gold. Since I'm, for example, having my 72nd birthday tomorrow, and element 72 is hafnium, there is a little hafnium. Um, Two little rocks. Here's what... Here's what they sound like if you rattle them. I, I, I have coming to me, I hope it arrives today, an ingot of hafnium, which will be very much more satisfying. <laughs> um, what would you do with an ingot that you can't do with the two little pebbles? Uh, I'll be able to hold it in my hand. My first love of chemistry had to do with the, the sensuous. Here, one of the liquid elements, bromine. I, I loved the colors, the kind brown. faintly brown, fluidy thing. Um, yeah. The luster, pale golden mercury. Very, very beautiful. The the physical properties. This is a gas trapped in a little vial? Yes. Uh, one, one wouldn't want to drop that. Why not? Well, it's, it's not good to breathe. Can I just jump in here for a second? Sure. Um, but the thing that's really crazy about that box, and this you don't get from uh, from looking at a periodic chart on the wall, is that all those elements? Lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon, nitrogen. That's like the world. I mean, everything that we can see and perceive this table right here, the teeth in my mouth, the sky, the ocean, the mountains, it's all made of some combination of elements from that box. And the box itself gives it all a deep, deep order. I had noticed myself, one can't help noticing, that the elements are organized in a very special sort of way. For example, May I excuse you for a moment? I, I, I have managed to not notice. I find it a little odd that you could organize them at all. I, I don't even know how to begin the, the process of figuring out they're okay. related in some um, way. Well, well, then, then you are sort of um, recapitulating what you know, what what everyone felt in the in the early days. Of course, in the really early days, people thought there were just four elements. The ancient notion of elements uh, took the form of earth, air fire and water. Basically the thought that the whole world could be composed of these four ingredients in different ways. But then in the 18th century, we're skipping ahead a bit, chemists began to break things down into uh, smaller pieces like wind became gases like oxygen and hydrogen and nitrogen and earth got divided up into things like sulfur, phosphorus, iron. By the way, in order to do this kind of investigating, do you have to boil and pull and tug and fry and steam and do things like that? All of the above. So to fast forward, after enough of this boiling and tugging and frying and steaming, Uh chemists got all the way down to the root of it, which was the atom. That's really what an element is. It's a particular kind of atom. The problem was, though, when chemists began to start measuring these atoms, they found that they were all different sizes and types. Like one would be heavy, another would be light third one would be really friendly, likes to link up with other atoms, whereas the fourth would be a loner. And they would come in combinations like heavy, friendly, heavy, shy, light, friendly, light, shy. What was the pattern? That was the question. Could they fit all of these differences and similarities into one big schema? 
since we mentioned his name, let me here show you a picture of the... Um, um, Here's where we get to Oliver's hero. The Siberian bigamist, uh, <laughs> uh, as he is called. That would be Dmitry Mendeleev. The great Mendeleev, whom we will talk about. Oliver has a black and white picture of him on uh, his kitchen cabinet. Uh, this man is not going to win any any beauty contest. Um, no, no, no he, uh, he looks like a mixture between Rasputin and... Um, uh, who do I mean? Well, you mean he has a big nose, a shaggy, slightly unkempt white beard, a mustache that goes all over the place, piercing eyes, thick eyebrows, and looks like he's in a hunchback position. Generally, if you met him on the sidewalk, you'd probably want to walk around him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't believe in wasting time going to a barber. Let me just ask you, as to the degree of your passion, when you look at this man, do you think he's a beautiful-looking guy, or do you see what I see? Um, I think Mendeleev had a beautiful mind. Okay, in 1860, uh, around 1860, there were trains going all over Russia, and Mendeleev could afford to take trains. He was often on enormous journeys, and to while away the time, since he couldn't do chemical experiments or whatever, he would take playing cards with the name of various elements, their chemical and physical properties, and he would play what he called chemical solitaire. Sorting them for likeness or uh, sorting them? I'm afraid I, 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 I don't know the details. But you know what we can imagine, right? Sure. So let's just say he's there, sitting there on the train, he's looking out the window, he sees trees made of carbon, carbon. a lake made of hydrogen and oxygen, hydrogen, oxygen. behind that a mountain, Mountains, yeah. made of silica, silica. And he's shuffling their properties and their atomic weights in his mind. Wondering, how do these things go together? What's the pattern? pattern? And he's shuffling. I'm shuffling. 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 And he did this for years. Until one night. This we think is true. In February of 1869, he is said to have had a dream. In his dream, all the atoms of all the elements of all the world... The fat ones, the small ones, the dense ones, the heavy ones, the friendly ones, the shy ones, they all began to dance in his mind. And then they snapped into a grid. He awoke with a vision of the periodic table. This is one of those <laughs> dreams, which he then wrote on the back of an envelope. The thing about what he wrote on the back of that envelope is that it starts out so simply. Left to right, the atoms just get heavier and heavier and heavier. Heavier, heavier, heavier. But every so often, and this is what he intuited in his dream, is that while they're getting heavier, their other traits, like whether they're shy or magnetic or whatever, those traits oh. repeat. Periodically change back again. And every time they do, start a new row. The properties repeat again. <laughs> Out of this simple repeating structure, Very nice. hush, Mendeleev, you get a table that you can read in a million ways. There are so many ways to read this table. I think I'm going to call this the periodic table. <laughs> that if you use your imagination, you can see yourself in there. I, I was a rather shy kid with a, a difficulty forming relationships. Um, and I sometimes compared myself to the inert gases. Inert gases are very isolated. They react with nothing. Because I, I felt they, they too had difficulties forming relationships. But um, I did... Uh 
He has now left the chair and has moved to the library and is taking out any hugely thick, actually a dangerously thick book. This is the Handbook of Physics and Chemistry. As you see, it has 5,000 pages. I had a smaller version as a boy, and um, from brooding in this book, it seemed to me just possible that one of the inert gases, xenon, might be seduced into combination by the most active element of all, which was fluorine. This lonely, lonely gas might find a partner somehow. Um, yeah. Did they ever get together? In fact, it came to me with great joy when I found out uh, in the 1960s that a, actually a Canadian chemist uh, had in fact made a fluoride of xenon. <sighs> ah, yes. Elemental love. <laughs> and speaking of love, he then took us... I think let's come oh, here. Okay. One right. sec. Where are we going? To the living room. And he showed us a small painting. In the painting, there was this dramatic figure of a bearded, scowling character on the side of a mountain, holding two stone tablets over his head. And the sky was filled with lightning. And who was it? It was Dmitri Mendeleev. When I heard of how Mendeleev had um, discovered the periodic table, I imagined Mendeleev as a sort of Moses going up to a chemical cyanide and coming down with the tablets of the periodic law. And when I mentioned this fantasy to Peter Selgin, my friend, uh, uh, an artist, uh, he did this imaginative picture of the young Mendeleev, the peaks of a chemical cyanide behind him, holding aloft the tablets of the periodic table. Which raises maybe the deepest question of all. Did Mendeleev think this up and impose it upon the world? Or was this pattern always there? In which case Mendeleev just removed the veil and said, oh, there you are. Is the periodic table a discovery or an invention? Is it a human construct or is it a revelation of the cosmic or divine order? Is it, so to speak, God's abacus? Radio Lab was created by Jad Abumrad and is edited by Soren Wheeler. Lulu Miller and Latif Nasser are our co-hosts. Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Jeremy Bloom, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, W. Harry Fortuna, David Gable, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Sindhu Nanasambandam, Matt Kielty, Annie McEwen, Alex Neeson, Zara Kari, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. Our fact checkers are Diane Kelly and Emily Krieger. Hi, this is Susanna calling from Washington, D.C. Leadership support for Radiolab science programming is provided by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative, and the John Templeton Foundation. Foundational support for Radiolab was provided by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>